Good day, good day. Welcome back, listeners, or welcome new listeners to Stories, Fables, Ghostly Tales. And today, I'm sharing Scottish tales of hauntings. Two big stories strapped together just for your lovely ears. Oh yes, there's a haunting. Oh yes, there's a candle that freaks people out and there's slamming doors and all sorts of weird stuff. With the tale of the death boggle of the crossroads and the inextinguishable candle of the old white house at Pitlochry. Two cases just for your lovely ears. Written all the way back in 1911. Holy schmoldy, right? Mates, have a lovely tea at the ready and I'll share you a Scottish tale that's sure to tickle that horror bone. Well, at least one that would be tickling horror bones of those in 1911. Either way, they are just sweet little horror stories in their own right. Enjoy, you legends. The Death Boggle of the Crossroads and the Inextinguishable Candle of the Old White House. Pit Lockery. Several years ago, bent on revisiting Perthshire, a locality which had great attractions for me as a boy, I answered an advertisement in a popular ladies' weekly. As far as I can recollect, it was somewhat to this effect. Comfortable home offered to a gentleman, a bachelor, at moderate terms in an elderly highland lady's house at Pitlockery. Must be a strict teetotaler and non-smoker. F.M. Box so-and-so. The naivete and originality of the advertisement pleased me. The idea of obtaining as a boarder a young man combining such virtues as abstinence from alcohol and tobacco amused me vastly. And then a bachelor too. Did she mean to make love to him herself? A sly old thing. She took care to insert the epithet, elderly, in order to avoid suspicion, and there was no doubt about it. She thirsted for matrimony, being tabooed by all the men who had even as much as caught a passing glimpse of her. This was her last resource. She would entrap some unwary stranger, a man with money of course, and inveigle him into marrying her. And there rose up before me visions of a tall, angular, forty-year-old Scottish spinster with high cheekbones virulent sandy hair, and brawny arms. The sort of women that ought not to have been a woman at all. The sort that sets all my teeth on edge. Yet it was pitlockery, heavenly pitlockery, and there was no one else advertising in that town. That I should suit her in every aspect by this matrimonial I did not doubt. I can pass muster in any company as a teetotaler. I abominate tobacco, Leastways, it abominates me, which amounts to much about the same thing, and I am, or rather I can be, tolerably amenable, if my surroundings are not positively infernal, and there are no county council children within shooting distance. But for once my instincts were all wrong. The advertiser, a Miss Flora MacDonald of Donald Murray House, did not resemble my preconception of her in any respect. She was of medium height, a dainty build, a fairy-like creature clad in rustling silks, with wavy white hair, bright blue eyes, straight, delicate features and hands, 
the shape and slenderness of which at once pronounced her as a psychic. She greeted me with all the stately courtesy of the old school. My portmanteau was taken upstairs by a solemn-eyed lad in the MacDonald tartan, and the tea bell rang me down to a most appetizing repast of strawberries and cream, scones and delicious buttered toast. I fell in love with my hostess. It would be sheer sacrilege to designate such a divine creature by the vulgar term of landlady. At once, when one's impressions of a place are at first exalted, they are often later on apt to become equally abased. In this case, however, it was otherwise. My appreciation both of Miss Flora, MacDonald, and of her house daily increased. The food was all that could be desired, and my bedroom, sweet with the perfume of jasmine and roses, presented such a picture of dainty cleanliness as awakened in me feelings of shame, that it should be defiled by all my dusty, travel-worn accoutrements. I flatter myself that Miss MacDonald liked me also, that she did not regard me altogether as one of the common herd, was doubtless in some degree, due to the fact that she was a Jacobite. And in a discussion of the associations of her romantic namesake, Flora MacDonald, with Perthshire, it leaked out that our respective ancestors had commanded battalions in Louis XIV's far-famed Scottish and Irish brigades. That discovery bridged gulfs. We were no longer payer and paid. We were friends. Friends for life. A lump comes into my throat as I pen these words, for it is only a short time since I heard of her death. A week or so after I had settled in her home, I took, at her suggestion, a rest. And I quite agree with her, it was a very necessary rest, from my writing, and spent the day on Loch Tay, leaving again for Donald Murray's house at seven o'clock in the evening. It was a brilliant moonlight night, not a cloud in the sky, and the landscape stood out almost as clearly as in the daytime. I cycled, and after a hard but thoroughly enjoyable spell of pedalling, eventually came to a standstill on the high road, a mile or two from the first lights of Pitlockery. I halted, not through fatigue, for I was almost as fresh as when I started, but because I was entranced with the delightful atmosphere and wanted to draw in a few really deep draughts of it before returning into bed. My halting place was on a triangular plot of grass at the junction of four roads. I propped my machine against a hedge and stood with my back leaning against a signpost and my face in the direction whence I'd come. I remained in this attitude for some minutes, probably ten, and was about to remount my bicycle when I suddenly became icy cold, and a frightful, hideous terror seized and gripped me so hard that the machine, slipping from my palsied hands, fell to the ground with a crash. The next instant, something, for the life of me, I knew not what, its outline was so blurred and indefinite alighted on the open space in front of me with a soft thud, and remained standing as bolt upright as a cylindrical pillar. From afar off, there then came the low rumble of wheels, 
which momentarily grew in intensity. Until there, thundered into view a wagon, weighed down beneath a monstrous stack of hay, on the top of which sat a man in a wide-brimmed straw hat, engaged in a deep confabulation with a boy in corduroys who sprawled beside him. The horse, catching sight of the motionless thing opposite me, at once stood still and snorted violently. The man cried out, Hey! Hey! What's the matter with ya beast? And then, in a hysterical kind of screech, Great God! What's yon figure there I see? What yon figure, Thomas? The boy immediately raised himself into a kneeling position, and clutching hold of the man's arm, screamed, I dinna ken, I dinna ken, Matthew, but take heed, mon, it does nae touch me. It's me, it's come after, nah ye. The moonlight was so strong that the faces of the speakers were revealed to me with extraordinary vividness, and their horrified expressions were even more startling than was the silent, ghastly figure of the unknown. The scene comes back to me here, in my little room in Norwood, which its every detail as clearly marked as on the night it was first enacted. The long range of cone-shaped mountains, darkly silhouetted against the silvery sky, and seemingly hushed in gaping expectancy the shining, scaly surface of some far-off tarn or river, perceptible only at intervals, owing to the thick clusters of gently nodding pines, the whitewashed walls of cottages glistening amid the dark green denizens of the thickly leaved box trees and the light, feathery foliage of the golden Lebanon, the undulating meadows besprinkled with gauze and grotesquely moulded crags of granite, the white, the dazzling white roads, saturated with moonbeams, all, all were overwhelmed with stillness, the stillness that belongs, and belongs only, to the mountains and trees and plains, the stillness of Shadowland. I even counted the buttons, the horn buttons on the rustic coats, one was missing from the man's, two from the boy's. And I even noted the sweat stains under the armpits of Matthew's shirt and the dents and tears in Thomas's soft wide awake. I observed all these trivialities and more besides. I saw the abrupt rising and falling of the man's chest as his breath came in sharp jerks. The stream of dirty saliva that oozed from between his blackberry stained lips and dribbled down his chin. I saw their hands, the man's square-fingered, black-nailed, big-veined, shining with perspiration and clutching grimly at the reins, the boys smaller and, if anything, rather more grimy, the one pressed flat down on the hay, the other extended in front of him, the palms stretched outwards, and all the fingers widely apart. A while these minute particulars were being driven into my soul, the cause of it all, the indefinable, esoteric column, stood silent and motionless over against the hedge, a baleful glow emanating from it. The horse suddenly broke the spell, dashing its head forward. It broke off at a gallop, and tearing frantically past the phantasm, went helter-skelter down the road to my left. I then saw Thomas turning a somersault, miraculously saved from falling headfirst on the road by rebounding from the pitchfork which had been wedged upright in the hay, whilst the figure, which followed in their wake with prodigious bounds, 
was apparently trying to get at him with its spidery arms. But whether it succeeded or not, I cannot say, for I was so uncomfortably fearful lest it should return to me, that I mounted my bicycle and rode as I had never ridden before and never ridden since. I described the incident to Miss MacDonald on my return. She looked very serious. It was stupid of me not to have warned you, she said, that that particular spot in the road has always, at least ever since I can remember, borne the reputation of being haunted. None of the peasants round here will venture within a mile of it after twilight. So the carters you saw must have been strangers. No one has ever seen the ghost except in the misty form in which it appeared to you. It does not frequent the place every night. It only appears periodically, and its method never varies. It leaps over a wall or hedge, remains stationary till someone approaches, and then pursues them with monstrous springs. The person it touches invariably dies within a year. I well recollect when I was in my teens, or just a night as this, driving home with my father from Lady Colin Furner's croquet party at Blair Athol. When we got to the spot you name, the horse shied, and before I could realize what had happened, we were racing home at a terrific pace. My father and I sat in front, and the groom, a highland boy from the valley of Ben Yee Glow, behind. Never having seen my father frightened, his agitation now alarmed me horribly, and the more so as my instinct told me it was caused by something other than the mere bolting of the horse. I was soon enlightened. A gigantic figure, with leaps and bounds, suddenly overtook us and, thrusting out its long, thin arms, touched my father lightly on the hand, and then with a harsh cry, more like that of some strange animal than that of a human being, disappeared. Neither of us spoke till we reached home. I did not live here then, but in a house on the other side of Pitlockery, when my father who was still as white as a sheet, took me aside and whispered, Whatever you do, Flora, don't breathe a word of what has happened to your mother, and never let her go along that road at night. It was the death boggle. I shall die within twelve months. And he did. Miss MacDonald paused. A brief silence ensued, and she then went on with all her customary briskness. I cannot describe the thing any more than you can except that it gave me the impression it had no eyes. But what it was, whether the ghost of a man, woman, or some peculiar beast, I could not, for the life of me, tell. Now, Mr. O'Donnell, have you had enough for one evening, or would you like to hear just one more? Knowing that sleep was utterly out of the question, and that one or two more thrills would make very little difference to my already shattered nerves, I replied that I would listen eagerly to anything she could tell me, however horrible. My permission thus gained, and gained so readily, Miss MacDonald, not without, I noticed, one or two apprehensive glances at the slightly rustling curtains, which ran as nearly as I can remember, as follows. After my father's death, I told my mother about her adventure, the night we drove home from Lady Colin Ferner's party and asked her if she remembered ever having heard anything that could possibly account for the phenomenon. After a few moments of reflection, this is the story she told me. The inextinguishable candle, 
of the old white house. And this is how it began. There once was a house known as the old white house that used to stand by the side of the road, close to where you say the horse first took fright. Some people of the name of Holkit, relations of dear old Sir Arthur Holkit, and great friends of ours, used to live there. The house, it was popularly believed, had been built on the site of an ancient burial ground. Everyone used to say it was haunted, and the Holkits had great trouble in getting servants. The appearance of the haunted house did not belie its reputation, for its grey walls, sombre garden, gloomy halls, dark passages and staircase, and sinister-looking attics could not have been more thoroughly suggestive of all kinds of ghostly phenomena. Moreover, the whole atmosphere of the place, no matter how hot and bright the sun, was cold and dreary, and it was a constant source of wonder to everyone how Lady Holcott could live there. She was, however, always cheerful, and used to tell me that nothing would induce her to leave a spot dear to so many generations of her family and associated with the happiest recollections in her life. She was very fond of company, and there was scarcely a week in the year in which she had not someone staying with her. I can only remember her as a widow, her husband, a major in the Gordon Highlanders, having died in India before I was born. She had two daughters, Margaret and Alice, both considered very handsome, but some years older than I. This difference in age, however, did not prevent our being on very friendly terms, and I was constantly invited to their house, in the summer to croquet and archery, in the winter to balls. Like most elderly ladies of that period, Lady Holkett was very fond of cards, and she and my mother used frequently to play bezique and cribbage, whilst the girls and I indulged in something rather more frivolous. On the occasions, the carriage always came for us at ten, since my mother, for some other reason, I had a shrewd suspicion it was on account of the alleged haunting, would never return home after this time. When she accepted an invitation to a ball, it was always conditionally that Lady Holkett would put us both up for the night, and the carriage used, then, to come for us the following day after one o'clock luncheon. I shall never forget the last time I went to a dance at the old White House, though it was now rather more than fifty years ago. My apothecary, of whose skill she had a very poor opinion. My mother had quite made up her mind to accompany me to the ball, but at the last moment, the weather being appalling, she yielded to advice, and my aunt Nora, who happened to be staying with us at the time, chaperoned me instead. It was snowing when we set out, and as it snowed all through the night and most of the day, the roads were completely blocked, and we had to remain at the old White House from Monday evening till the following Thursday. Aunt Nora and I occupied separate bedrooms, and mine was at the end, long passage away from everybody else. Prior to this, my mother and I always shared a room, the only really pleasant one. So I thought, overlooking the front lawn. But on this occasion, there being a number of visitors, Belated like ourselves, we had to squeeze in wherever we could, and as my aunt and I would have separate rooms, my aunt liking a room to herself, it was natural that she would be allotted the largest and most comfortable. Consequently, she was domiciled in the wing where all the other visitors slept, while I, 
was forced to retreat to a passage on the other side of the house, where, with the exception of my apartment, there were none other but lumber rooms. All went smoothly and happily, and nothing interrupted the harmony of our visit till the night before we returned home. We had supper. Our meals were differently arranged in those days, and Margaret and I were ascending the staircase on our way to bed, when Alice, who had run upstairs ahead of us, met us with a scared face. "'Oh, do come to my room!' she cried. "'Something has happened to Mary!' Mary was one of the housemates. We both accompanied her, and on entering her room, found Mary seated on a chair, sobbing hysterically. One only had to glance at the girl to see she was suffering from some very severe shock. Though normally red-cheeked and placid, in short, a very healthy, stolid creature, and the last person to be easily perturbed, she was now without a vestige of colour, whilst the pupils of her eyes were dilated with terror, and her entire body, from the crown of her head to the soles of her feet, shook as if with ague. I was immeasurably shocked to see her. Why, Mary, Margaret exclaimed, whatever is the matter? What has happened? It's the candle, miss, the girl gasped. The candle in Miss Trevor's room, I can't put it out. You can't put it out? Why, what nonsense, Margaret said. Are you mad? It is true. As I sit here, miss, Mary panted. I put the candle on the mantelpiece while I set the room to the right, and when I had finished and come to blow it out, I couldn't. I blew and blew and blew, but it hadn't any effect. And then I grew afraid, miss, horribly afraid. And here she buried her face in her hands and shuddered. I have never been afraid like this before, miss. She returned slowly, and I had come away and left the candle burning. How absurd of you, Margaret scolded. We must go and put it out at once. I have a good mind to make you come with us, Mary. But there, stay where you are, and for goodness sake, stop crying, where everyone in the house will hear you. So saying, Margaret hurried off, Alice and I accompanying her, and on arriving outside my room, the door of which was wide open, we perceived the lighted candle standing in the position Mary had described. I looked at the girls and perceived, in spite of my endeavours not to perceive it, the unmistakable signs of a great fear. Fear of something they suspected but dared not name, lurking in the corners of their eyes. Who will go first? Margaret demanded. No one spoke. Well then, she continued, I will. And, suiting the action of the word, she stepped over the threshold. The moment she did so, the door began to close. This is curious, she cried. Push! We did. We all three pushed, but despite our efforts, the door came resolutely to and we were shut out. Then before we had time to recover from our astonishment, it flew open. But before we could cross the threshold, it came violently to the same manner as it was before. Some unseen force held it against us. Let us make one more effort, Margaret said, and if we don't succeed, we will call for help. Obeying her instructions, we once again pushed. I was nearest the handle, and in some manner, how none of us could explain, just as the door opened on its own accord, I slipped and fell inside. The door then closed immediately with a bang. 
And to my unmitigated horror, I found myself alone in the room. And for some seconds, I was spellbound. I could not even collect my thoughts sufficiently to frame a reply to the piteous entreaties of the Holkits, who kept banging on the doors and imploring me to tell them what was happening. Never in the hideous excitement of nightmare had I experienced such a terror as the terror that room conveyed to my mind. Though nothing was to be seen, nothing but the candle, the light of which was peculiarly white and vibrating, I felt the presence of something inexpressibly menacing and horrible. It was in the light, the atmosphere, the furniture, everywhere. On all sides it surrounded me. On all sides I was threatened. Threatened in a manner that was strange and deadly. Something suggesting to me that the source of the evil originated in the candle. And that if I could succeed in extinguishing the light, I should free myself from the ghostly presence. I advanced towards the mantelpiece and, drawing in a deep breath, blew, blew with the energy born of desperation. It had no effect. I repeated my efforts. I blew frantically, madly, but all to no purpose. The candle still burned, burned softly and mockingly. Then a fearful terror seized me and, flying to the opposite side of the room, I buried my face against the wall and waited for what the sickly beatings of my heart warned me was coming. Constrained to look, I slightly, only very, very slightly, moved around. And there, there floating, stealthily towards me, through the air came the candle. The vibrating, glowing, baleful candle. I hid my face again and prayed to God to let me faint. Nearer and nearer drew the light, wilder and wilder, the wrenches at the door. Closely and closely I pressed myself to the wall, and then, then, when the final throes of agony were more than human heart and brain could stand, there came the suspicion, the suggestion of a touch, of a touch so horrid that my prayers were at last answered. And I fainted. When I recovered, I was in Margaret's room, and half a dozen well-known forms were gathered around me. It appears that with the collapse of my body on the floor, the door that had so effectively resisted every effort to turn the handle immediately flew open, and I was discovered lying on the ground with the candle still alight on the ground beside me. My aunt experienced no difficulty in blowing out the refractory candle, and I was carried with the greatest tenderness into the other wing of the house, where I slept that night. Little was said about the incident next day, but all who knew of it expressed in their faces the utmost anxiety, an anxiety which, now that I had recovered, greatly puzzled me. On our return home, another shock awaited me. We found to our dismay that my mother was seriously ill, and that the doctor, who had been sent for from Perth the previous evening, just about the time of my adventure with the candle, had stated that she might not survive the day. His warning was fulfilled. She died at sunset. Her death, of course, may have had nothing at all to do with the candle episode, yet it struck me then as an odd coincidence, and seems all the more strange to me after hearing your account of the boggle that touched your dear father in the road. 
so near the spot where the Holkit's house once stood. I could never discover whether Lady Holkit or her daughters ever saw anything of a superphysical nature in their house. After my experience, they were always very reticent on that subject. And naturally, I did not like to press it. On Lady Holcott's death, Margaret and Alice sold the house, which was eventually pulled down, as no one would live in it. And I believe the ground on which it stood is now a turnip field. That, my dear, is all I can tell you. Now, Mr. O'Donnell, Miss MacDonald added, Having heard our experiences, my mother and mine, what is your opinion? Do you think the phenomenon of the candle was in any way connected with the boggle both you and I have seen? Or are the hauntings of the old white house entirely separate from those of the road? And legends, what do you think? Do you think this is pure dink? Do you think that Miss MacDonald is on her last day? And what on earth do you think would possess the boggle to haunt that street at night? Good gravy. Nothing beats some old-school Scottish stories all the way from 1911. Holy moly. Thank you, legends, for spending the time with me and listening to today's story. If you want to support the show, you can visit my Patreon, which is in my episode notes, or you can shoot me an email at storiesfablesghostlytales at gmail.com. And don't be shy, I love hearing from you lovely sausages. It always makes my day. And just in case I don't catch you amazing people next Monday, have a fantabulous Christmas, aka holiday, whichever you prefer. Either way, it's a lovely break. And I hope you have a wonderfully safe time with family and friends, or just by yourself chillaxing. I'll be thinking of you legends. And speaking of legends, I want to thank my amazing Ode Knight T Titan, Matosaurus Rex, aka Matostar, aka the deity that scoops this little podcast up into a catapult and grabs a whole catapult and throws it out of the hemisphere into the galaxies beyond. Thank you, you legend, and I can't wait to respond this weekend to your lovely email. Last weekend was pretty bonkers crazy, but this weekend, I'm putting time aside for your lovely self. Thank you, mate, for your ongoing support and support this year. Holy moly, you blink and you miss it, right, Matto? It's gone so quick. Thank you immensely for supporting me for so long. You really are a true pal. Cheers, you legend. And my amazing supporter, Lazuka Rex. When I say stalwart of this podcast, Leza, you really, really are. It's been such a long time we've been together sharing stories and supporting the podcast. You really are a very, very special person, just like Matto, just like all my supporters. Thank you immensely for supporting me for so, so long. It really is a miracle that people like you exist out there and powers like you exist out there. You really are a very, very special person. Thank you immensely, mate. Yourselves and the supporters really make a difference to this podcast. And of course, my Earl Grey enforcers and all of my supporters. I'm lucky to have Chad Warren, 
Joss Heather, Sunshine Days, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffaelli, Michelangelo Yacone, Divided by Zero, Leah Fasig, Alia Arcane, Paige Kramer, Jane Gumnick, Michael Krupp, Jandy Prince, and of course, Seductive Smiles. Thank you all, you very kind and special people. Now, pour your tea, make it nice, ensure your flavoring is precise, like a story, let it flow. Let the fables and tales take you home. It's these stories that bring us together and old audio that reminds us of how we've changed. Stay a while, have a listen, and as always, I hope to see you again.